Hello, and welcome to Boston Heart Diagnostics Podcast, Heart Matters. I'm Ann Stones, a medical science liaison with Boston Heart Diagnostics. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Amy Domine, DNP, who is an adjunct professor at Texas Tech Health Science Center, Lubbock, Texas, a clinical associate professor at Washington State University College of Medicine, assistant professor at the University of Kentucky's College of Dentistry, and currently runs the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center in Spokane, Washington. She is one of the nation's leading specialists in preventing heart attacks, stroke, and diabetes. She is also a forefront leader in women's cardiovascular health prevention. She co-founded the Bale Donine Method with Bradley Bale in 2001. Their holistic, personalized approach of cardiovascular risk reduction has been effective enough to allow them to attach a guarantee to their clinical practices. The results of their method of demonstrating regression and stabilization of arterial disease have been published in several peer-reviewed journals. Welcome, Dr. Dane. Thank you, Anne. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. So if, if you detect inflammation, uh, is there a particular diet that you place your patients on? Um, are there certain foods that you want them to avoid or that you feel like likely cause inflammation in most everyone? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for asking it because, you know, we're all trying to figure it out, right? But uh, we really pride ourselves on being as precision-based as possible. So a key element to the Baldoni method is applying genetics to practice. And so even when we offer lifestyle advice, what we realize is that there is no panacea diet for all of us. Um, there's just not. I mean, some people will benefit from one diet modality and the other, and it's very confusing to patients because if a patient was to read a book in isolation, um, they might believe that that would be best for them. And as you read that piece of literature, it makes sense. However, we all respond differently to what we put in our mouth. So we appreciate a couple different genes for dietary advice. The first one is called the APOE gene, and it's found on chromosome 19, and it allows us to understand how our bodies break down common food groups like fats, carbohydrates, proteins, things like alcohol advice, are all going to be made based on the APOE gene. So there's three alleles to that, and there's an APOE 2, 3, or 4. Of course, with all genes, you're going to get one from your mom and one from your father. And so based on someone's APOE presentation, I might offer a low-fat diet, a higher fat, and when I say fat, I mean the good fats like the omegas, um, and things like that. Uh, saturated fats, we know as a whole, are not good for anybody. Um, and there are certain things that aren't good for us, too many carbohydrates, too much sugar, soda, all those are blanket recommendations. But to get very precise on how our lipid profile is going to respond and our inflammation, we like to use the APOE gene. Another one that we've really enjoyed is the opportunity to understand um, someone's haptoglobin status. Haptoglobin is a gene that um, uh, most of the data has to do with um, diabetics, uh, type 2 diabetics, and that's where most of the, di the, the data rests and where it's been studied the heaviest on 
um, is type 2 diabetics. And, and if someone carries the haptoglobin 2 genotype and they are a type 2 diabetic, they have an increased cardiovascular risk throughout their lifetime. The interesting thing about haptoglobin 2 individuals, whether they're diabetic or not, is that when they ingest gluten, which is wheat, rye, or barley, has nothing to do with an allergy, but they produce a chemical called zonulin. Zonulin affects all cellular barriers in our body. So it can affect the gut and make um, symptoms of what you would say a leaky gut. So irritable bowel, um, bloating, um, things like that from the blood-brain barrier, it can cause a permeability. So they've looked at depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia, um, attention deficit disorders, um, all this idea of this zonulin not being a friendly element to health, um, whether it be in the joints mimicking something like an arthritis, whether it be in the respiratory tract, um, people might be more vulnerable, as you'll see with children or adults, um, reactive airway diseases like exercise-induced asthma or um, environmentally-induced asthma. So we, we guide our advice based on should someone have gluten or not, probiotics, should someone have a lower fat, higher higher fat, Mediterranean, should they be vegan, should, you know, all that based on someone's unique individual profile. And then we balance all of that with their root causes because if someone's insulin resistant, we are going to also include mechanisms and lifestyle advice that would prevent them from going on to type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot of decisions to be appreciated when we look at um you know, someone's genetic predisposition. The, the most popular diet right now is really the what, what would be called the fasting mimicking diet. And, and I think that's very exciting literature, actually, when you look at autophagy and senescence or the body's ability to clean itself up, if you will. So when you look at some of these fasting uh, programs, which they've done on uh, mice and to some degree humans, where they've looked at fatty liver disease or brain health, and they've showed um, through the research that this fasting mimicking diet modality creates ketosis based on timing um, rather than um, just the food choices that we might eat. So, um, and a, a weight loss would be a side effect of all of that. But um, so I think diet recommendations are certainly not simple. I do not believe there's a panacea diet for any of us. And based on someone's medical history, family history, personal history, religious beliefs, um, cultural beliefs and their genetics, APOE, haptoglobin, insulin resistance profiles, um, we're going to make an individualized approach. Wow. I think that is a textbook definition of personalized medicine, Dr. Gamey. That is, <laughs> that is amazing. Your patients are very fortunate to have you at the helm. Oh, well, that's kind of you. So with so much controversy uh, recently surrounding aspirin therapy and primary care, how do you use the LPA genotyping, which is different from the LP blood levels, um, to help you determine which patients may benefit from aspirin therapy? Um, in regards to your question about aspirin usage, um, the trials that came out with about whether men and women over age 65 should use aspirin and basically the headlines, and, and I, I did a, a blog on this actually, whether the headlines um, that say in New York Times and Washington Post and CNN and Fox News all left our patients with a very confusing 
uh, statement, they said, quote, in healthy people, aspirin use should be avoided um, and left the patient to wonder, well, gosh, am I healthy or am I not? I feel pretty good, so perhaps I should stop that baby aspirin. So the reality with aspirin therapy is the following. When those trials, the ASPRI trial and the ASPIRE trial, they put people, as the standard of care does, and they put them in a binary system. Standard of care right now is still hinged on a binary system. It's a world of have and have not. So you either have had a heart attack or an ischemic stroke, or you have not. The question becomes, in that population of have not, is the caveat yet, does that be on them, meaning they have not had a heart attack or stroke yet. Um, the question that we like to ask um, ourselves in, in response to that is to wonder, are you walking around with plaque hiding in your artery or are you not? Because if you are, the role of aspirin therapy should be applied. If someone has plaque, whether it's misbehaved once before and they've had an ischemic event from it, or not, if it's sitting there, we use aspirin therapy at the lowest dose possible, 81 milligrams coded, and then we do follow-up aspirin resistance testing to appreciate is that aspirin working to provide the value of platelet blockade so if that patient had an inflammatory event that they would not be so aggressive as to form a thrombus. Um, causing a cardiovascular event. So what we do is we tier, um, we are, we tier patients into tertiles. You have, you do not have vascular disease and we don't just look at the carotids. We'll look at an IMT, a coronary scan, aorta, femorals. We'll look to the best of our knowledge and say there is no plaque there. If someone has plaque, then yes, aspirin is necessary, and yes, it's a dangerous drug, and yes, there's bleeding risk with it, so we don't take the decision lightly. But then we follow up with an aspirin resistance test to know that they're getting benefit. To your question about the LPA gene, and that should not be confused with lipoprotein A, capital L, capital P, capital A, the LPA gene, if someone is a positive carrier, it demonstrates that aspirin may have different utility than just the antithrombotic role that, that we use it for. So the interesting thing about LPA um, if someone is positive, based on all kinds of factors, the clinician may choose to use um, low-dose aspirin to protect them based on the literature because the literature really suggests, and it was published in 2009 in atherosclerosis, that if someone is a carrier of LPA and they're placed on aspirin, they go down to that non-carrier risk, Kaplan-Meier, you know, risk profile. So um, there's not, the rarity is to be positive for LPA, but if you are, you might consider aspirin for other reasons than just the traditional antithrombotic protection. Thank you so much for um, giving us a clear picture um, of, of kind of the current state of aspirin um, used and maybe some of the drawbacks to those recent studies. So thank mm -hmm. you. Definitely. Can you... Um, so one another gene that you reference in your book um, is the 9P21, which is called the heart attack gene. Can you tell us more about this gene? So a funny story about that, just, just so your readers will appreciate it. Um, you know, 50% of us carry this gene. So it's by far and above very, very common. Um, 
50% of us carry at least one allele to it, and about 25% of us carry two alleles. In, in other words, we're a homozygous carrier. As we were talking to uh, Larry King about this, who wrote the foreword in our book, and we were saying, gosh, this gene is, you know, if you have it independent of your cholesterol, your family history, your blood pressure, presence or absence of diabetes, your weight, your CRP, regardless of any of that, if you carry this gene, you are at an increased risk for heart attack, a cardiovascular event, an aneurysm. Therefore, we, we, we dub the name the heart attack gene. And Larry King said, so you're telling me 50% of us have this? And we said, yes. And he said, well, why don't we all just live our life like we have the gene, because if we thought we had the gene, maybe we would make different decisions. Maybe we would smoke less. Maybe we would exercise more. Maybe we would do all these things knowing that we are at, at a genetic increased risk for these things. And I, I thought it was quite poignant what he said in how we clinically used genes, and because, you know, I tell people, look, the idea of using genes to look at our lifetime risk of aneurysm, our lifetime risk of the development of vascular disease or vascular events, our lifetime risk of developing a fib, for example, it seems kind of nuanced, but go back couple decades and realize that we've had genes to understand our breast cancer risk. For, for decades, and if you carried a gene for something like cancer, breast cancer, you would not wait till you're 40 or 50 to get a mammogram. You would get checked out earlier and more often. So if you carry a gene like 9P21, knowing that you've got a 50-50 chance of carrying it and appreciating that heart disease remains the number one cause of death and disability, and if you have this gene, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a heart attack or stroke. It doesn't. It means that you better get checked out, and you better not walk around with your head in the sand realizing, well, it couldn't happen to me. Because one thing I've learned over the last 18 years is no one expects a heart attack or stroke. When Luke Perry died of his stroke, on Wednesday he was fine. On Thursday he was in ICU with a stroke. He did not know that was coming his way on Thursday. So if Luke Perry had had the opportunity to appreciate, did he have this gene? Did he have other genes? And and he was wrapped up into a more knowledgeable clinical setting where they said, well, let's look for atherosclerosis. Let's look for inflammation. Let's identify your root causes. Again, treat the Y, see the inflammation go down and see the disease stabilize. So that's how we use these. So I'll give you another tangible with 9P21. We know that people who carry 9P21, whether they're heterozygous positive or homozygous positive, meaning they got it from both sides of the family, they are at increased risk for abdominal aortic aneurysm. The current standard of care does not assess our aneurysm diameter, our aortic diameter, until we're well, well past, past the idea of when we should look at it. It's not even part of a normal physical until you enter Medicaid or Medicare age. What we like to say is if you have an increased risk or carry this gene, we are going to get a good baseline of at least by age 50, age 40 if you're a smoker, to know what a normal diameter of your abdominal aorta is. And then depending on that result, we will make a choice to follow you frequently or, or be very tight on things that could make an aneurysm worse, like mild hypertension or obesity or exposure to nicotine in any way. Um, so we use genes to really help us, again, be very individualized in our care, but also to identify with patients, look, this is a genetic disease. 
And and what we need to do is appreciate the fact that we have this knowledge and do something about it. But a very powerful tool, not only for, you know, clinicians, but also patients to realize, to fully realize and appreciate their risk. And like you were saying, to, to make lifestyle changes, it's just take better care of themselves. So great. That's Thank right. you. Um, and you know, one one thing I will say with this beautiful time we live in with the availability of genetics, there is so much um, um, guilt, I guess, associated with heart disease. Like when I meet people after they've had a heart attack or stroke, they almost feel guilty like, gosh, I should have done this better or I should have done that better and and yes we all need to improve our lifestyle we all want to do the best job we can every day um, and, and I, I lifestyle is always number one but giving someone the insight to say look you are genetically set up for this now let's spend the rest of your life making sure it doesn't happen to you and having that knowledge almost in my opinion, gives people a sense of freedom. Not to say that they're not responsible, but quite the opposite, to say, oh, my gosh, I am genetically set up. I am going to nail this lifestyle piece. I'm going to really grab hold of this because I know I'm genetically set up to have risk. So I'm going to do something about it. So for me, genetics for a clinical setting is very empowering for both um, treatment decisions how is someone going to respond to a certain treatment decisions, whether it be a medication or lifestyle, and what is their lifetime risk? I'm going to set individual screening tools based on the N of 1, that unique, beautiful individual patient based on their genetic profile and not what um, the insurance carrier is going to tell me when or that I can't screen somebody. Absolutely. And one of the genetic markers that you may actually to determine that your treatment um, modality, specifically a certain statin type, might be kif 6 Can you tell us more about kif 6 Sure. So um, kif 6 is great, and we've used it for a number of years. But kif 6 certainly, um, if someone carries kif 6 and really it's about um, the genetic variant change from tryptophan to arginine on the tail section of the, the kif 6 which probably too much to, to say, but anyway, if someone has transposed that to arginine, the tryptophan to arginine, they are increased cardiovascular. They show it like a 55% increased lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. So it can be utilized in that way. But number two, they've done overlay of statin therapy on different um, data sets. And it's been demonstrated that people who are non-KIF-6 carriers, meaning they only have the tryptophan, they don't have, they're not arginine carriers, they actually don't get the long-term cardiovascular protection from some very common statins like atorvastatin or pravastatin. So if someone's a non-KIF-6 carrier, and we use statins and for atherosclerotic stabilization, they remain today still the best anti-inflammatory drug we have for the wall of the artery, even with the excitement with the new PCSK9 inhibitors, which we know affect lipids tremendously and obviously have a great impact on lipoprotein A. We don't have inflammatory data yet on those. So statins remain the best anti-inflammatory drug. So if someone's got plaque, we're going to use um, a statin. We want to use as low as dose as possible. We're going to guide which one based on their KIF-6 profile and also even the presence of absence of dyspnea or metabolic profiles. We might make a different selection one over the other. But it's great. 
you know, the whole idea, too, of pharmacogenetic testing where we can appreciate, um, you know, how our body processes um, a drug, let's say, through the cytochrome P450 isoenzyme pathway of the liver is the future of pharmacotherapy. So if, if we know how someone... The most common example of this would be 2C19, CRT2C19, which is the, the pathway that Plavix or clopidogrel is metabolized through. So if someone's a poor or rapid metabolizer of 2C19, it's going to depict how their body is going to metabolize clopidogrel, which is a life-saving mechanism um, treatment, obviously. So I just love genetics. I love how it can be clinically applied, and I feel like we are just on the tip of the iceberg um, of what we're going to be able to do in the future going to really help us, again, be precise in our treatment selections. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Denain, I recently read in the uh, new ACIP guidelines about um, obesity and how that's a risk factor for ACIP, which I think we've known for a while, but does knowing um, your patient's 4Q25 status influence um, your patient or you yourself and, and how you may um, treat your patients maybe before they develop AFib. Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking that. You know, um, AFib is not a fun diagnosis for anybody. Now that it, they don't feel well, and, and the treatment is a bit antiquated in that we just basically recognize AFib historically, and we say, well, if you have AFib, we can try to make it go away through technologies like ablation therapy and drug management but none of those are fun. And then ultimately what happens is we just throw people on heavy-duty um, platelet blockades so they don't throw a clot to the brain, and that's been the historic treatment of AFib. So I have long craved an idea to know if someone is at increased risk for AFib throughout their lifetime. And so that's where 4Q25 was such a player for us when it kind of hit the forefront in 2007. Um, but do you know that if someone carries 4Q25, 40 to 70% increased lifetime risk of developing AFib? So then the, the hypothesis might be, well, so then what do we do? You know, that's a bummer. You know, what do we do? I, when I read that, I kind of went in and, and did a lot of just internal research to decide how am I going to help my patient who carries that gene? And, and I actually developed a one-and-a-half-hour course on AFib preventative techniques, not treating AFib after the fact. That should really be done by an electrophysiologist. But what can I do as a prevention expert to prevent AFib? And, oh, my gosh, there's so much. Like one piece of data says, Look at the EKG. You know, we look at the EKG for obvious problems like like ischemia or arrhythmias. But when we look at the uh, EKG, do you know that we can even look at the QTC intervals? And there's data to say if those QTC intervals are elongated, the risk of AFib goes up. So that's one clue we could have to say, my goodness we really need to, to, to look at you and, and nurture and make sure we're being as consistent as we can. We have data that ACE inhibitors lower risk of AFib. From a lifestyle standpoint, do you know that the I'm convinced the key for AFib prevention is consistency. 
So the, that's why you find this, this scattered data to say, you know, endurance athletes have higher risk of AFib or obesity has higher rates of AFib and um, all the alcohol, yes, alcohol, no. And, and what I've determined based on the literature, my clinical statement is I want my patients to be consistent. I don't like weekend warrior activity. I want them to exercise every day. I want them to lower their body fat um, to a healthy level. I want them to maintain their muscle mass to a healthy level. I want their sleep to be evaluated. Anyone who has this gene should be getting a sleep study to look for sleep fragmentation, to look at obstructive sleep apnea. Anyone who carries this gene needs to follow the sprint data and keep their blood pressure optimized at 120 over 80 or less. Everyone with this Gene needs to make sure they're getting enough fruits and vegetables and uh, nitric oxide-driven foods like berries. They need to watch their saturated fats. They need to work on their stress anxiety. They need to, you know, I could go on and on, but, oh, I love 4Q25 because I dislike AFib. <laughs> so having this allows me to really sit down with patients and say, okay, you're genetically predisposed. Let's do something about it. Let's make sure it never happens to you. Go for it. And consistency is not a message I think patients hear very, very frequently. And it's something that they could, you know, kind of easily work on um, behind the scenes while they're working on um, all the other lifestyle um, changes that they're going to be doing. But doing it maybe in, in smaller terms on a more consistent basis. So that's a great message. And thank you for telling us how you use these genetics, um, informing our, our listeners on what they are, what they're used for, and how they can help both you and your patient um, just really live a, a better and longer life. Oh, thank you. I'm honored, really. I'm, I'm very honored. So, Dr. Ganine, if people are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find more information? Well, thanks for asking. That's our whole goal is education. Um, I feel like the more I learn about this, the more I need to learn. And so we've taken that passion of knowledge, um, attainment, uh, to share it with others. So twice a year we have uh, CME programs and CE programs that are backed by the American Academy of Family Practice, and we offer dental CE with those as well. And we give them twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall. Um, our next course is in November. And, oh, my gosh, we would love it for anyone who's using inflammatory testing or genetics or um, looking at atherosclerosis to come to the two-day course to really appreciate where to put this information into an architecture of clinical utility. That's what I like to call it. Um, and it's dynamic. It changes all the time. Visit our website at baledonine.com. That's B-A-L-E, Donine, D-O-N-E-E-N.com, and learn about our online courses. Our, we do monthly scientific update sessions where every month, um, we're going to share with you the data in the world of vascular health that's been published in the last uh, 30 days. So we really push ourselves to stay current and give you the information along the way. Um, get your office branded so you're a bail donine practice so when people read our book, Beat the Heart Attack Gene, they know where to find a provider who knows how to... Um, you know, treat them. So we have been working tirelessly behind the scenes and to make this information accessible. Um, and I just thank you for allowing me to, to share that. 
Of course, and thank you so much, Dr. Ning, for your valuable time. And I know our listeners have just learned so much, so thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 